going to finish up this letter today, written, our study of this letter, written by this man named John. Um, he was a fisherman. Um, his dad's name was Zebedee. Uh, Jesus gave him and his brother the nickname Sons of Thunder. Um, He was one of the 12 apostles. He traveled with Jesus. He's actually one of the inner three. Uh, He got to see things that even the 12 didn't get to see. He was there uh, when the synagogue ruler from near Capernaum came and asked, and Jesus raised his 12-year-old daughter from the dead. He was there at the transfiguration when this veil was pulled back and he he got to see Jesus as he really was. Um, Heaven and earth intersecting. Uh, He was there um, when Jesus was going through the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. So John saw these things with his own eyes. And uh, he is writing this letter probably with others. Uh, him kind of leading the, the, the drive. He's probably uh, wrote it at great expense, right? It was very expensive to send letters back then. Uh, probably multiple drafts, travel expenses alone to deliver the letter would have been incredible. Um, and he uses in this letter a, a beautiful literary technique from that time where he goes back to the same topic. He keeps circling back around and around and around to the same topics over and over again. Each time he adds a a little something extra to it. (laughs) So he'll bring up the same things over and over and over again, but adding more to it each time. Uh, So some of the themes that we've seen so far in this letter uh, is, uh, I wrote some of them down. He talks about life 13 times. What does it mean to have life and eternal life? He mentions truth nine times. He mentions hate five times. Uh, He mentions abiding, us abiding in Christ and in God, God abiding us 24 times. Talks about one another, how to love one another seven times. Uh, And he uses the word love uh, as a verb 17 times and as a noun 14 times. And it's just scattered all the way through and he keeps coming back to these themes over and over again, building up, building up, building up, building up this beautiful, beautiful picture. Church tradition says that he wrote this probably from Ephesus, that he probably kind of spent a lot of time in his later life uh, in Ephesus, which is the city uh, in Turkey on the coast, right? And he's probably writing to other churches in the area of Asia. We don't exactly know, but that's probably what's happening But that's it. And he's writing like a concerned father to a bunch of people that he loves who he feels like are in danger of being tricked. So he's writing out of that concern. So the people that he loves are in crisis. He's writing this letter to. They're in crisis. Uh, A group of people have left the church and uh, that they knew that he had probably, he at least oversaw, maybe helped found. And um, the people that left are claiming this interesting thing, at the very least, it seems, it seems clear uh, from the letter and what he's saying and from what we know of history, that these people are claiming that there is a disconnect, that there's no connection at all between the spiritual and the physical. Uh, he says there can't, that they're probably saying something like there can't be a connection. They're arguing this, there can't be this connection between the physical and the spiritual because the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. The physical will pass away, the spiritual is forever. So that 
means two things relevant to this congregation that he's writing to. What they are trying to convince them of is one, that since the physical and the spiritual aren't the same, and the one's good and one's bad, they can't be connected, there's no way that Jesus came in the flesh. He seemed like he may, he might have seemed like he was here, he might have seemed like he was the flesh, but he couldn't have come and physically died on a cross and physically raised again. That was just a metaphor or just an image or something like that. That didn't really happen because Jesus is good, Jesus is spiritual, therefore he's spiritual is good, he couldn't have been physical bad, right? That's one of the conclusions they've drawn. And so John's writing this letter saying, that's nonsense. I heard him with my ears, I saw him with my eyes, and I touched him with my hands. Cat was real. Like he was there. I know it. I was in all these places with him. So he's writing against that. And the other thing that they, the conclusion they draw from this, this premise that the physical and the spiritual uh, aren't connected is that whatever I do in the flesh doesn't really affect my spirit, right? So I can engage in all manner of sinful worldly practices with my body, and it doesn't really matter because that's going to go away. My spirit still belongs to God, and I know him. And John is writing and saying, what are you, high? Like, of course there's a connection between the physical and spiritual. Of course what you do physically affects you uh, uh, spiritually. Of course what you do spiritually affects you physically. Of course they're connected. So he's writing this letter to this. These people making these arguments that probably would have had the appearance of truth sounded very intellectual possibly. And so it would have been confusing to people, I think. I think they would have been asking, are these people who have left us, who are once part of us, do they really know something we don't? Are they right? They look like they're having a really good time. <laughs> I don't know if you've done that, but that was pretty much my entire youth group experience. I was looking at other people going like, I don't know. They look like they're having a great time over there. Like, should we go do that? No? You sure? Because you sure? it seems like they're having a great time. So that's probably what's happening. They're probably having a 90s youth group experience. Lots of puppets. So, uh, so he's writing to them, and, and the arguments would have had the appearance of truth, uh, having a good time, uh, which brings us to the big question, right, that they probably were asking. How can we know that what we believe is right? How do we know that we're believing the right things, John? And how do we know we're living the right way? Which is a question for you and me, right? That's not just a question for the people that John's writing to. It's a question for us. It's why it's a great good gift that it's in the Bible. So John is writing the whole letter to assure and to encourage them uh, of the legitimacy of their faith, that they are right to follow Jesus, and that they have eternal life in Jesus. So here's what we're going to do today. Uh, We're going to do a bit of uh, a summary uh, of what John has taught, uh, because it's what John does in his conclusion anyway. So as we conclude in, in John's conclusion, you'll see that he's making a summary of these things. So we'll do a summary uh, of these things, of what he's already said. Uh, uh, and But here's the thing that makes me excited. <laughs> is The last verse is super weird, and I love it so much. Like it, The last verse, like you read it and you're like, you kind of want to go back and read the whole letter again to make sure you didn't miss something. I love a good ending. Like, the, like I think that it's kind of like, what? Like, like the end of, uh, end of Ruth, right? When it's like, all of a sudden, this, you've read this amazingly beautiful story, and all of a sudden you get to the end, it's like, hey, all this story, by the way, leads to the fact that this baby in this story that Naomi is holding, that Ruth is mobile woman, guess what? King David. That's how we get King David. And you're like, what? And that's just how the story ends. I love it so much. Or Jonah. You get to the end of Jonah, and jo- Jonah's preached this amazing sermon, like a whole city has been saved, you, and you would expect it to end like Rudy with him carrying Jonah out on their shoulders, and instead it ends with Jonah throwing the, a, a hissy fit of biblical proportion. 
And God, the whole, the whole thing ends with Jonah going like, God asking Jonah a question like, should you really be mad like this? Like, should you, like, should you be, and, and Jonah's saying, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I absolutely have every right to be this angry. And the whole thing ends with God saying, there's like 200,000 people in that city. Why would I not have a heart for them and mercy for them? And then it just ends. Beautiful. John's got a pretty good uh, way of doing this, by the way. Uh, we know a uh, pretty, pretty good chance. Uh, we know he wrote John, right? The book of the gospel of John, not this letter, but the gospel of John. And it ends this way. <laughs> this is just some of the stuff Jesus did. Like, I, I don't think there's enough, uh, enough pen and paper in the entire world to list down everything that we saw him do. What a great ending. Like, you hear all this amazing stuff, and he's just like, tip of the iceberg, guys. I love it. He ends Revelation, <laughs> talk, it, come Lord Jesus, come. Talking about Jesus returning again. And then he ends this verse, we'll see. Uh, I'm gonna read to you the, the end of John. I'm gonna start in verse 13, First John, this letter. I write these things to you that you may believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. All right, stop. So this, here's his purpose statement, right? He concludes with, here's why I've written this stuff. Like, this is clearly the conclusion. I'm writing these things to you so that you'll know that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you have eternal life. This is his purpose statement. This is why I've said everything that I've said. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is, sins that, there, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch it. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life, Little children, keep yourself from idols. So you see the summary all the way up to it. He's revisiting things. Hey, look, of course, if you're not going to continue sinning if you're of him. Hey, if you're him, you know him, you're in the truth, and you abide in him. Things that he said before. He keeps repeating all of these themes until the very last verse when he brings up idols for the first time. I hasn't mentioned idols yet at all. This guy who keeps repeating himself over and over again. Last sentence, new thought. It's almost like it was like written and done, and they're like, should we say anything else? He's like, uh, I guess you could say something about idols. I don't know. Or maybe, maybe he's been leading up to this. So here's the deal. Let's walk, talk about what he's done. What he said up to this point, right? So up to this point, he's been just hammering over and over again that Jesus is real. Not just that he's real, but he came in the flesh, that he's God's son, God entering into the world, that he is flesh, that he really died, that we are cleansed from our sins because he came in the flesh and died. He's building that theme up. Not only that, he says that he is faithful and just to forgive us. This is in chapter one. He ends chapter one this way. He says that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins because of Jesus Christ, which is amazing, right? 
I spent most of my life, you expect that sentence to say that he is faithful and merciful or faithful and gracious. He's faithful because he promised that he would do it and then his grace pours out on us. But he actually doesn't say faithful and gracious, although it is grace. He says he's faithful and just to forgive us. We can have confidence in our Christian walk, confidence before God because God is faithful and he's just to forgive us. It is right that God forgives us because of what Jesus has done. If you were in Christ, if you were connected to him, if you were unified to him, it would be unjust for God to punish us again because Christ has already taken our place. So we can rely not only on God's faithfulness, not only on his grace, but on his justice because of Jesus to know that we stand right before God by faith in Jesus. Unbelievable. That's one of the things he said. And then he's basically gone on to apply what that means. When we take faithful, faith, God's faithfulness and his justice to us and we apply it to our lives consistently, we apply that truth to the places in our hearts that lie to us, right? The things in this world that lie to us, our hearts that lie to us, all of these things that lie to us, when we take that reality of God's faithfulness, his graciousness, and his justice to us and we apply it to our heart in, a daily, heart in our daily basis, man, it is such a balm. It is such a comfort. It is such healing for a world and a heart that tell me constantly that I don't live up. In a world that says, hey, you know what? If you just work hard enough, then you can have all of these things. Why would God, or if you just work hard enough, then God will accept you. And when we apply to our heart this feeling that we'll never live up, sorry, the reality uh, of, of Jesus' accomplishments on the cross to our heart on a daily basis, man, it just answers all of those lies that we'll never live up. And God will not accept us because we will not live up. It says, yes, of course you're not gonna live up. And God loves you anyway. It's a different way to live. My fears and my anxieties and all of these things that have come into the world, he meets us with this truth. And basically, John is saying to his people over and over and over again, you need to apply the reality of who Jesus is and what God has done in Jesus to your hearts all the time. (laughs) Following Jesus will change your life. John talks about it in a lot of times. In that when we begin to follow Jesus, it, uh, and I'm summing up, it begins to properly sort our loves. It begins to properly order our affections. Uh, when we worship Jesus and place him at the center of our life, all of the other good things find their proper place and never try to elevate. When we try, when they try to elevate above Christ, we're able to push them back in their proper place. When we elevate good things like work and family and com- friendship and community, all good things, but when we elevate those above Christ, there's great danger. And John says, when we apply these truths and these realities to our heart, it orders our love. It makes us capable of loving those things in the right way in a better way than we ever could if we placed them first. Following Jesus will change your heart and your loves and it will change your life. Uh, Matter of fact, John says that probably the best way to really talk about what a dramatic change it is in our hearts and lives is to think of ourselves as being completely born again. This is a new thing in the world. And the result is love, right? 
So he keeps coming back around to this theme of love over and over again through the letter. The results of this new birth, this new life that we have in Jesus, by, the, the result is, is love. And he goes on and on and on about how we're supposed to love one another. Because Christ has loved us, because God has loved us, because God, Christ has laid down his life for us, then we turn around and we begin to love the brothers. That's not what we have to do to gain God's affections. It's what we do when we begin to understand the depth of his affection for us. The result is love. We begin to have a heart for the things that God has a heart for. Our heart begins to beat like Christ's does. And we learn how to lay down our lives for others. And this love, where does it come from? It grows from faith, right? The road to love is paved with faith, right? The way that we arrive at this is by our faith in Christ, And when we have faith in Christ, we begin, it's the beginning of our abiding in him and him in us. God abides in us. He lives in us and dwells in us in some way. Our life is so wrapped up in his that when we look at our lives, it is so tangled up and and intertwined with Jesus. It's the source of everything that we can be said to be abiding, to be dwelling, to be living there. That is what he's been saying over and over again, which leads him to the conclusion where we should have Confidence. That's what he says. Have confidence. I write these things to you who believe, this is verse 13, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So he brings up life here again. He writes these things. You should know these things, that if you are a child of God, if you've been made new, you can know and have confidence that you have eternal life. That eternal life is... Well, let's talk about that for a second. Eternal life... Uh, ties back to some Old Testament ideas. Um, actually ties back to uh, this, this eternal life, uh, translating and trying to figure out how to, how to describe this phrase that means life unto the age. The biblical notion uh, of time uh, is that there are at least it came to be developed, and it was definitely talked about this by the time of, in, in this way by the time of Jesus. But there are two ages, right? And each age contains little ages inside of it, right? An age just being, uh, you know, something that you know has something in common. You all went to middle school, like the Bronze Age, right? What it has in common is we developed bronze and used bronze, right? Like you, you, you remember that from like third grade? I don't remember when they taught that. But anyway, you, like ages, and so really, there's two huge ages, two big ages that they think about. One is uh, the age that we're in right now, and then the age when God comes and fixes everything and makes Israel, puts Israel back on top. Right? God comes and brings judgment. There's these two huge ages and everything else exists inside of them. So the, the, the eternal life would be this continuation after God comes of this life beyond. The latter time when God acts decisively in judgment. To judge evil, rescue Israel, bring justice and peace. Eternal life doesn't just mean the life that we have now going on forever it's also qualitative, a better kind of life, a, a life that is bigger, fuller. You know, Jesus just talked about it as, as there's going to be a time when there's no more tears, right? When death is no more is how it's written of. That kind of thing that exists. That's the biblical idea of the age that is to come. And the biblical idea of ages also goes along with it. There's this idea, not just of, of two different ages, but of two different realms. There's a heavenly realm and an earthly realm. Right? Guess which one we inhabit? We inhabit the earthly one, right? 
uh, they, they once did overlap, right? I think the stories of the Garden of Eden, that's what you see. You see the overlapping of the eternal realm where God dwells in the earthly realm, right? The eternal God steps into time and space, creates all of these things, and he bends down into the dust and forms mankind out of the dust, right? Very earthy. Adam from the earth, right? He, he shapes them out of the earth. This very earthly creature. But this earthly creature, God breathes his life into this earthly creature and places him in a garden where there is this tree of life. And somehow he walks and talks and has this relationship with this Adam, with this humanity. God's realm and human realm somehow overlap and they exist together. Somehow heaven and earth are together. Then, of course, Adam and Eve decide that they want that life that God has promised, the life of ruling, the life of eternity, but they want it on their own terms. So they decide to take it for themselves. They're tricked by a superior spiritual being (laughs) into being disobedient to God, and then just chaos, just chaos is unleashed. Uh, as the door to Eden is closed and they're cast out into the merely earthly realm in shame and fear and jealousy and all of these things begin to play out on individual scales and then on regional scales, eventually on national scales. Where sin just reigns. Death has rule. This life that comes from God is no longer there. And so when we get to the New Testament, this idea of access to life, this idea of having that, you know what? I think that most of what we do as human beings, right now, you and me, I think a lot of what we do is either trying to find that person, place, thing, relationship that's just out of reach that's going to make everything okay. That, that thing that trans, just transcends our current situation is just out of reach. We, we're either trying to find that thing uh, one move after the other, or we're trying to distract ourselves from the angst that we have that's inside of us because we don't have that thing. Because we're made for another world, right? I think most of what we do is just searching for one thing after another to make everything okay because we are made for another place. We were made to inhabit a different realm. So we are looking for these things, trying to distract ourselves from these things, and we're constantly trying to find them. And then the biblical story comes, and John tells us here that Jesus comes, and by faith in the Son of God, all of a sudden, we have access to that other realm again. That's the biblical story. That these realms are actually not one and then the other, but they overlap and there's a place where the the eternal invades the time and space, where, where the heavenly invades the earthly. You see it all through the Old Testament when you look back now, right? Look back now and you see the tabernacle and the temple, right? There were these places that you could go to and somehow God was in there but also here. It was almost like a, and this has a limited, uh, limited, uh, this illustration is limited, right? Obviously all, all metaphors are, but like a, uh, an, an embassy, right? You know what an embassy is? It's, it's, a, it's a place in another country, but even though it's another country, it's actually here. 
right? If you ever watch any kind of action film in another country, they're always looking for the embassy, right? Ah, I gotta get to the embassy. Why? Why do I get to the embassy? Because that's where safety is. That's where, where we hide. It's the place where I'm here, and even though I'm in Germany, I'm in America. I'm on American soil, right? It's this idea that there's, it's, yes, I'm in Germany, but I'm also in America at the same time. Uh, that's what the tabernacle and temple were like. There were these places that overlapped where somehow heaven and earth interacted. Uh, they overlapped and somehow came together. I think we see it all through the Old Testament. And then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus says this amazing thing. The access to that other realm that you were made for, that life that you want, God's life that, you, that flowed into humanity in the garden, that you can have again, but you find it in me and me alone. By being connected to the life of Christ, that eternity, not just the length of time that we'll live, but that quality of living, somehow you have access to it. By having faith in him, by united in me, I've brought that, and now I am the door, I am the path, I am the tabernacle, I am the temple, I am the place that you meet God. Which is why it's so amazing in the stories, when Jesus dies, when he's crucified, it says that the temple veil the veil that, that separated kind of the normal area, the holy area from the holy of holy areas where God was, where you could only go once a year. When Jesus dies, it says that was ripped into. Because it's no longer through this veil, but through Jesus Christ that we will interact with God. We will meet God. That somehow in our relationship, being united to Christ, who lived this perfect life and stood in our place, when we're united to him, somehow we have access to that eternal God quality of life. And here's the thing. We have it now. Like you have access to that now. Yes, we're waiting for the fulfillment of it, but you have it now. Listen, listen, I write these things to you that you believe, it's by faith that you have these things, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you're just going to live forever, you're going to die and be raised again and go forever, but since some mysterious way you will be un- through your uniting with Christ, you have eternal life, and you have it now. This is the confidence that we have toward him. Right now, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. He says this, if you pray in accordance with God's will, he'll give it to you. That's the kind of access that you now have. He doesn't say if you get together and light candles and hold hands and sing kumbaya and get the smoke machine going and get yourself really worked up emotionally, then God may answer your prayer. He says, no, you go to, in, through Jesus Christ, you come into my presence and you ask and he gives. Unbelievable. We have, he wants them to know that because of this life in Christ, because of abiding in Christ that turns out to look like loving the brothers, you have this by faith, and now what you do is have the confidence to enter into God's presence and pray and ask according to his will. Unreal. To pray and know that when we ask things according to his will, lined up with his will, that he will give them to us. Prayer is this unbelievable thing, this unbelievable access to the Father that was unthinkable before. I, I um, okay, so this week, um, uh, I went to this event uh, my wife asked me to go to because I'm a good husband. And uh, I went without complaining at all. It's not true, I complained a lot. Um, so I had to go to this event and there were people there and I had kind of, it was at a, at a, at a restaurant, 
and I'd kind of withdrawn and ordered food. Uh, and the food came, and I was standing at this table uh, eating the food, and, and one of the people from the group had wandered over and began to talk to me. And because these wings were really good, uh, I was a little distracted. And this person said, you know, hey, what are you Wendy, married to Wendy? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And like, uh, they're like, what do you do? And because the wings were so good, I accidentally said I'm a pastor. Uh, and then all of a sudden I was like, uh-oh, I shouldn't have said that, right? I, I, don't, I just, I don't want to, because they said, oh, really? And I was like, oh, man, like, I don't, what's going to happen now? And they said, and so my thought, my instinct was, I should just run. But the wings were good, so I'm just, I'm just eating the wings, um, and they began to talk about stuff and just, just you know, I wasn't really paying attention for most of it. I was listening to, do I need to respond to a thing? And then all of a sudden they started talking about prayer. It was great. I loved it. Like the, all the things they said, you know, about praying for this, praying for that. Pray. And I started to like, uh, I was getting through the wings pretty good. And I was, all of a sudden I was like, I need to say a thing. And about that time, Wendy noticed what was happening. And she kind of like recognized the situation. Like, oh no, he's almost out of wings. And so she comes running over. Uh, and... Uh, she does two things. Uh, one, she slides the uh, loaded cheese fries in front of me. And the second thing she does is to distract me. The second thing she does is grab my hand and squeeze. You know, there's just enough pressure, not to hurt, but enough pressure to be like, hey, careful. Uh, and uh, I started to say, like, I just, I just, what I want to say was like, that's not, I think maybe there's more to it than that. There's more to prayer than that. There's more to it than that. I'm not saying you don't pray for this and this and this, but I just want to just, just, just scream that it's not just, it's not just us who have a good life asking for a better one. It's access to God himself. Luckily, the cheese fries are really good, and I was distracted again. I didn't get into all of that just then. Because here's the deal. That's, I'm not that dude's pastor, right? I'm, there, I don't, I'm not him. I'm not, you, know? you are my people. We'll talk forever about it. But I, I, was, I, I wanted to say more. And here's what I want to say about prayer. So I've been thinking about this since I ran out of wings. This is, this is what I want to say to you. It's okay that you have these moments where you pray these things. I'd get, I, I want this. God, I, I need this. God, I, I would like this to happen. That's fine as long as also that that sits on top of understanding and an entire life dedicated to the fact that we can enter into a conversation with the God who speaks and the earth melts. The God who spoke things into existence and you can enter into his presence and say, I struggle with fear. Or you enter into his presence and say, my anxiety is crippling. I confess that I don't trust you. We can enter into his presence and say, I am, the world is coming against me. I feel constant, my inadequacies, and I don't know that you really love me. When we pray in accordance to his will, the shaping of our souls to be more like Christ's, he hears us. The God of who, who touched the mountains and they smoke. That being says, I want you to come into my presence. Oh, I wish Tim Keller hadn't said it so well. I hate it when I have to quote Tim Keller. Not because he's bad, it's just like it happens a lot. So Keller said it this way. I've been trying so hard to think of a better way, but I can't. Keller says this, he, says, he said this, he says, who in the world would wake a king up in the middle of the night to ask for a cup of water? No one but a child. That is the kind of access you and I have to the king of the universe. The access of a child to go in the middle of the night and wake the king. Not that the king sleeps, but you see what I'm saying. What a 
powerful thing. How neglected my prayer life is. How neglected my prayer life is. It can only come from a misunderstanding uh, of the reality of what prayer is, right? I mean, otherwise, wouldn't I run to him in prayer? Wouldn't I call you to me and we would get together and pray? Like, my prayer life is so, so weak. Several pastors that I respect that I've heard retire, it just really convicted me. They asked him, all right, fine, it was Tim Keller again. Uh, And they said, uh, why? What would you do differently? And Keller said, I would have prayed a lot more. He says, I want you to know that you have confidence to enter the presence of the king because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Not because of who you are and what you've done, but because of who Jesus is, you can know that you have the confidence to enter into the king's presence and he will hear you and he will answer you. Doesn't mean it'll be the answer that you want, but he will hear you and he will answer you. Prayer is powerful. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death. All right, I'm about to say some things about this that will not be satisfying to you. And you will have additional questions. Feel free to email them to me. We don't really know what he means. Like I read an insane number of commentaries as I was struggling through. What does he mean when he says there are some sins that lead to death and some that don't? And there was an insane number of things, commentaries, that all kind of ended this way. We don't really know where he draws the line. What sins lead to death, what sins don't. But it seems to me from the context, the best thing that I can understand, there are sins that lead to death and sins that don't. Should I switch mics so I don't lose my mind? Is that possible, a thing that we can do in the back? All right, I'm going to switch mics. Is this all right? Yeah? That's much better for me. Thank you. Uh, so this thing, uh, what, what was I saying? You weren't paying attention? Uh, Sins that lead to death and sins that don't. He talked about those. And we don't really know what he means, but based on the context, based on what he's been saying in the rest of 1 John, it seems to me that what he's saying, since he's been arguing about these people who deny the reality of Christ, deny the bodily presence of Christ, that deny uh, that he came and that he died in his propitiation, it seems to me that he's at least in some way again bringing that back up. These people who deny Christ, there's no way that leads to life. Yes, you're going to sin. He says it like, he starts with the letter. There's forgiveness. When we do sin, there's forgiveness for us when we do. But there are some sin, and it seems to me that it falls in the realm of, we don't know where John's drawing the line, but in some way it draws, it falls in the realm of denying Jesus. And there can be no life apart from him. So uh, there's a lot more that could be said that, you know, Old Testament junk and stuff like that we could really get into. It would be amazing. If you want to just nerd out, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, but not right now. So he says there's these things, but he says this, if you see someone committing a sin that does not lead to death, not one of these denying Jesus and running away and and, and rejecting everything, but if you see them committing a sin, you should have the confidence to know that you should get together and pray for that person. One of the things that we should pray for in accordance to his will are those that are struggling with their faith. Hey, I know that it's confusing and I know that it's hard and I know there's a lot of stuff out there that's confusing and difficult and you know what you should do with the people that are really struggling with those things? You should pray for them. Pray for their faith. Pray that they return. I know people who have prayed for, there's a couple people that I've been praying for for 10, 15 years. Not every day like I should have been, not in the way that I should have. I don't want you to think that I've attained some spiritual plane where I pray for these people. But I, at random times in my life, 
I've been praying for these people's faith for years. And you know what? Sometimes God has answered them the way that I wanted to and brought them around. Sometimes he hasn't done it yet. The Bible says that one of the things that we can do to pray in accordance with God's will is to pray for those that are struggling with their faith. That is one of the things that we can know that we can do to have confidence in prayer, to pray for others. He also says that we can have confidence to know that we're protected. He says, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. He says this, he's not talking about just occasional sin, but lives that, that are patterned by sin, that are rejection of Christ's way and following our own way. Uh, the rejection of that way, of Christ's way and, and following our own, not that, but a, when we do sin, to go to him and ask for forgiveness. But those that don't sin, you can be confident that Christ protects you. That Christ guards us. That not even death itself can harm us. That somehow he is working all of these things together. And the temptation in this world for these people and for you and me is to begin to believe other things. That their access to a life that we want, access to the life that we need, access to forgiveness, access to all these other things is something else besides Jesus. There's another way besides Christ. Maybe I can act good enough and one day I'll be able to forgive myself. Nope, that won't get you there. It is only by accepting what Christ has done for you that you will ever arrive there. The access to this eternal life, even now, this confidence to live this way. This access is only comes through Christ, that he brings us in, that he is that veil, that he is that door, that he is that ladder that gives us access to eternal life now. And everything else that we pursue is a lie. Enough savings, my children acting right, me finally acting right, enough political influence, enough power, none of those things are the way. It is only in Jesus Christ, which is why I think he ends his letter, keep yourself from idols. All those other things are idols. All the other ways that aren't Jesus are idols. All the other things that you think that you're doing that you can do to make everything okay, to make everything right, to feel loved, to feel forgiven, to feel all these things, none of those things, they're just gross dirty, man-made idols that will not get you there. I think he's just summing up everything that he said. It's only in Jesus, everything else that anybody else creates, anything that anybody else makes up besides Christ coming and dying and raising again that you can have eternal life is just a man-made idol. And you need to guard your heart and keep yourself from them. So he can kind of concludes this way. His whole letter leading up to this, what are you giving yourself to? What are we? What keeps you up in the middle of the night? What if it goes right? Is everything okay? But if it goes wrong, everything's not. What makes you valuable? What makes you someone worth loving? What is the most important thing about you? If it's not Jesus, it's an idol. It's got no real power. It won't lay down its life for you. It will only consume you and leave you worse than it found you. But not Jesus. The one who came, who had a body, who died and rose again, who sits at the right hand of God and will one day return to judge the living and the dead. This is it. This is your access. This is the way. This is what John says to you and to me and to his readers. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness to us in Jesus that we can have 
eternal life, abundant life, a rich life, even now, access even now. To a life that is far grander than we could ever dream of. Because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has done, we can have actual life. Thank you for this gift. Give us eyes to see that, man, we are prone to chase idols. The human heart is a master idol factory. Protect us from that. Give us eyes to see where we are trusting people, places, things, relationships that are not you to make us happy, to make us okay, to heal us, to comfort us. All of those are idols. Give us eyes to see the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done. The body broken and the blood spilled in our place that we could have life through him. Increase our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.